This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Katie Bulls and Kate Andrews. So the national insurance hike comes into effect today with another 1.25 percentage point increase. Kate, can you run us through first what this is going to mean for people? Sure. So it's the new fiscal year. Happy new fiscal year, everyone. Thank you. Welcome. And so the new national insurance levy comes in. Now, this levy's had a lot of attention, not least because the Conservatives broke their tax manifesto pledge not to raise key taxes, including national insurance. Here we are, and we're going to see a 2.5 percentage point increase on national insurance. Half of that, 1.25 percentage points, is paid by employers, and the other half will be paid by employees. Now, this is supposed to go to social care in the long term. In the short term, it's going to be topping up the NHS to play catch-up post COVID. Here's the difficulty. In the spring statement a few weeks ago, the chancellor decided to raise the primary threshold for national insurance to bring it in line with income tax so that if you were earning at the very bottom end of the pay spectrum, you would be taken out of paying this altogether. That change doesn't come in for another three months. So actually, if you're earning around £10,000 a year, you are still going to be hit by this new levy for several months. This is coming at a time where the cost of living squeeze is very, very tight. People's bills have gone up in April. The energy price cap has risen by 54% inflation is uh, skyrocketing you know people are really feeling that they're feeling it at the supermarkets they're feeling it in their daily transport for essential goods it's a really difficult economic time and this NI rise is not especially popular not least because as I said the Tories have have broken their promise but uh, with increasing evidence that the NHS catch-up is going to take many, many years. And in the next three years, the waiting list is going to be closer to 10 million than the 5.5 or 6 million that it's at now, is is leaving a lot of people feeling a bit hopeless. They're going to be paying more money. They're not obviously going to be getting bang for their buck. They're not obviously going to be seen faster through the NHS. Their bills are going up. Really difficult time for the government, you know, to pretend like everything's okay. It's obviously not. Katie, this comes as a YouGov poll today showed Rishi Sunak's net favourability down 24 points in the two weeks after the spring statement. That puts him below Keir Starmer for the first time since the Labour leader took office. Is this the most serious crisis for the Chancellor since he Chancellor? Well, I think in terms of crises that he's faced, probably the pandemic felt in terms of his role as a Chancellor as the more the more serious one in terms of what he had to do. But I think you're talking politically, what is the situation that's going to be toughest for his own personal brand, his own standing, perhaps his own ambitions, A, to continue in his current job as Chancellor and potentially go to number 10 one day. Clearly, cost of living is the one that is hurting him the most. I think that it was always, to be honest, inconceivable that he would stay as popular as he was for the first year or so of being Chancellor. Now, that period coincided with printing, well, actually, we can talk about QE, but yeah, spending a lot of money and uh, paying people's wages. And therefore, I think the move from that to a situation where you're being you're the Chancellor who's having to say, no, we need to make difficult decisions. No, we cannot borrow to fund the social care policy. We're going to have to raise t- taxes. 
is one which is going to mean that he faces more of a backlash. I think what's interesting, if you're trying to look at what's happened here, is I think there's, there's probably it's twofold. So one, it's quite clear, I think, that Rishi Sunak has become the Tory face of the cost of living crisis. Now, maybe that was always going to happen because he is Chancellor. But if you think about the week of the spring statement, you had Boris Johnson at NATO talking about Ukraine, and you had Rishi Sunak fielding questions on cost of living. We see in a Conhome poll earlier this week that Boris Johnson, amongst Tory members when it comes to the cabinet league table they do, is back in the positive. Rishi's now in the bottom three. I think he's still net positive on that poll, I'd, I'd point out, but he's in the bottom three. So you can see how right now, in a way, Boris Johnson, I don't think, is being associated with this in the way that Rishi Sunak is. But I think what's also made things a bit tricky for Rishi Sunak is the fact that in various interviews surrounding that, and also there was that petrol stunt, there's been a few things, I think, which have suggested to some colleagues that he was getting quite irritable, that he perhaps isn't calm under pressure, and perhaps at points is politically naive if you think about you know filling up someone else's car with petrol. Things that I think if you're in a good news streak and everyone was like, this is great, you're cutting fuel duty, probably that stunt would have been fine. Oh, he's filled up someone's car, someone got petrol. But I think what Rishi Sunak and his team are having to learn is when that isn't the case, when actually you're the politician who's perhaps on a you know negative slant being criticised for lots of things, you actually do sort of have to do things a bit differently and it probably takes some adjusting. I still would say, though, I mean, if you're looking at the poll you mentioned, he, Rishi Sunak is still more popular than Boris Johnson. So I need to see all of them. I think he's equal to Liz Truss on the YouGov poll, but there's a big caveat there because Liz Truss is not nearly as well known as Rishi Sunak. So it comes with a disclaimer because it's that level of unknown that they have to say it's this, but be aware, I think it's like over 30% didn't know, so people didn't know who that person was. So I think we could draw from that that Rishi Sunak is the, still more popular in terms of most people in the Tory party. Is he on a downward spiral at this point? I don't think it's going to be a pleasant few months for him. It's not going to be a pleasant month, few months for lots of people in this country. But the point is, can you get to that other end, have things improve and actually... What lots of Tory MPs think is he doesn't really have many options right now in terms of what he's done in that spring statement. And perhaps in, you know, eight months time, things will be judged in a better light. Kate, as Katie says, Labour are looking to blame Rishi Sunak personally for this. They're going with the slogan of him being a high tax, low growth chancellor. Do they have any answers of their own to the cost of living crisis? It's a good point, Max, because... In truth, it's not obvious that the Labour Party is offering to do much more. And it's not obvious that politicians can do much more uh, in the sense that uh, inflation is the cat's out of the bag. The Bank of England is the one that raises interest rates, not politicians. Uh, The Bank of England is independent. And if you want to tame inflation, you're going to have to raise interest rates. Although I think there's an argument that we're six months too late and we may end up in a situation with quite high inflation and higher interest rates, which will be painful in and of itself. But in in, in terms of that, there's not loads that politicians can do at the moment. The the big difference is that Labour is saying we would implement a windfall tax on oil and gas companies that have been making profit. uh, And we would use that estimated between one in three billion pounds to help people at the lowest end of the pay spectrum pay their bills. Now, in normal times, one to three billion pounds is not a lot of money to scoff at. But if we consider that uh, in early February this year, the chancellor presented a nine billion pound package to help people with their energy bills that are going up this April when the energy price cap lifted, we're, we're really talking about a different time now post-COVID where, where billions, unfortunately, in terms of what we're spending now and in terms of what people expect, 
don't feel like they once did. They don't feel like pennies, but they don't feel like billions. So I guess what the Labour Party could say is, look, we would go one step further. We would do this extra thing. But of course, windfall taxes have huge problems of their own. Windfall taxes, wealth taxes, they've, they've been tried to cross Europe over the past few decades, different versions of it. Almost all of them have been rolled back. You never get as much money as you think. You lose the trust of companies. They start acting differently. And crucially, they stop investing. Um, they don't use their profits to reinvest in the company, especially in the greener energies that we would now like com- to see companies invest in. It's taken by the state and it's spent in a one-off. So I think it's difficult really to say that labor have this like you know magic cure for the cost of living crisis they obviously don't the difficulty for the Tories is that they're the ones in power and they're the ones who are going to have to see us through this and I guess my sympathy goes out to the chancellor a bit because he was one of the only people in the UK him and Andy Haldane the former chief economist of the Bank of England who were warning about inflation a year ago everybody else was just pulling the wool over their eyes and acting like there weren't going to be consequences for all the spending all the huge uh, economic decisions that we made I think the chancellor did know something like this was coming I think I'm, I'm sure that rationally he's been preparing to be less popular going from you know paying people's wages to telling them actually I'm really sorry I can't stop your bills from going up but you know it's it's different to know that's going to happen than to actually experience it and, you know, you know, the, 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 the tough love there is that if you're in power, if you want to be in power, if you ask for the job, you have to manage it. And I think that the spring statement, you know, it, it is all of the decisions that were made to to give people a bit of a boost and to relieve their financial burdens were aimed at people at the bottom, bottom end of the pay spectrum. And I think that was right. But the, the, the really hard thing is that it, it may not be enough. And with inflation so high, it's very difficult even for the Labour Party to argue that we should borrow the money because that would be a very expensive and increasingly dangerous thing to do. Katie, quasi quoting the business secretary yesterday, ordered a new report into the impact of fracking. There is currently a moratorium on it. Um, this comes as energy costs are spiralling. There's an increase at the beginning of this month and there's expected to be another one in autumn. Are we going to be looking at a U-turn on that moratorium anytime soon? So I think it could be, but ultimately one of the reasons the government has moved away from fracking is that it triggered so many complaints from local residents. I think when they thought about going to an election in some of these marginal seats, the threat of fracking in your neighbourhood was something that could swing things. And partly because of constituents' concerns, but also there are some MPs who disagree with it for their own reasons. There wasn't a parliamentary majority for it. I don't think it's clear yet whether enough has changed that there is now a parliamentary majority for fracking. I think that if you're looking for the MPs who are the most supportive of fracking, it tends to be lots of Northern MPs, um, some of the Red Wall 2019 intake are keen on this. But I think there's still some way, if you think about the time. So this is, I, I think, like the first step towards potentially getting to the return of fracking. But there's lots of opposing views on this in Cabinet. I think there's some people who think, you know, it's more pain than it's worth. The question is, do energy bills get to such a degree that this is seen as, you know, throw everything at it? Because we are tomorrow getting the energy strategy. We know the big focus for that is going to be offshore wind and nuclear in terms of long term. But given a lot of this stuff is going to take decades to come uh, you know, into, into use, I think that you are going to hear more Tory MPs who think their constituents are worried about cost of living saying we should be doing fracking because it is something we can do which is self-reliant and we can do it more quickly. And you said that there's not a majority. You said that there's been conflicts within the party and that it's the Northern MPs who are for it. Who are, who's on the other side of that debate in the party? So I think that falls into two camps. So there's definitely those who 
we can say are the, are the ones who tend to be resistant to planning reform and things being, you know, things that could disrupt the area, hurt the community, you know, add things. Um, and some of that crosses over, you know, scrapping radical housing reform. But there's the NIMBYs. Yes, you named it. There we go, the NIMBYs. And then I think there's also those MPs on environmental grounds do not think fracking is the right priority and you can see that bit in the sense that you know for example the green party they're very opposed to fracking but there are parts of that if you think about the uh, you know the various green wings of the tory party um that's you know eco brexiteers there are some of you have concerns on that level i think it comes down to it has the situation changed so much in terms of soaring energy bills that people now think it's worth that and, and politically do uh, mps conclude that the vote she may lose from residents being opposed to fracking in their constituencies is actually small fry compared to the votes you're going to lose from the cost of living crisis, which could be made easier by fracking. I don't think we're quite at the point where we can answer these questions. I think Katie's last point is extremely important there because you're going to have some elections long before we get to, let's assume, spring, summer 2024. It could be earlier, it could be later, who knows. You're going to see what happens to Joe Biden in the states this November in the midterm elections where he is expected to lose the House and the Senate, predominantly because of the cost of living crisis. And I don't think that the Tories are going to be much of an exception to this. Now, they're coming from a very different place that Joe Biden's coming from, different political system, different balance of power. Uh, Joe Biden does not have a strong majority. He holds on to the Senate by one seat, and that's his vice president. But I will not be surprised to see the cost of living crisis and inflation at the very top of voter concerns. And as long as it stays there and remains there, the Tories have a big problem on their hands. It's not one that you can cover up because people feel it on a day-to-day basis when they have to pull out their credit card to pay for just about anything. The interesting thing about fracking, which Annabelle Dunham highlights on Coffee House this week, is that it isn't the overnight solution that a lot of its defenders would say that it is. You know, you're not going to have cheap and abundant energy within a month. But realistically, the industry thinks that it could be getting a much bigger energy inflow into the UK by the end, by over the course of a year, for example. So as Katie pointed out, it's much more short term compared to something like nuclear energy, which is going to take, you know, close to a decade to really get online. So, you know, a big question around that is how long does it take for the public to become so angry about their bills that you actually seriously consider fracking? How long after that does it take for that new energy to be online? And in during that process, has the cost of living squeeze loosened? You know, have global energy prices gone down to something more reasonable? Has inflation subsided? Um, you know, these are all very difficult things to predict. And it's just as hard for us to do it as it is for politicians, which is why, you know, they're kind of bungling through right now. It doesn't seem to be a terribly confident strategy, but the best one they can come up with for now. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. And if you'd like to get a weekly summary of The Spectator's podcast straight into your inbox, then subscribe to our podcast highlights email at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights.